I think about hope as a two-person psychological phenomenon. I think of hope as a relational construct. Most of the literature out there looks at hope as a, as a trait or characteristic. Um, so it, it thinks about hope as an individual trait. Um, I think of it as a relational process. So there's the one person versus two person kind of split um, in some of the thinking. So there are some different operational definitions. I think there's also a confounding of terms where people use um, wishing and optimism mm -hmm. uh, to, to also convey, uh, you know, hope. And I think they're different. I think that wishing um, and optimism can't bear the weight of despair. Welcome today. Each time you hear me give one of these intro pieces, I've, I've just finished listening to the interview, so it's fresh on the mind, and this is, I don't know, I guess I'm just awed by, um, by this process. Today's participant, Robert Hilliker, is just his story really serves as a reminder for all the things each individual hopes. Interestingly enough, hope and despair is his area of research. And his story is one of hope. It's a reminder that despite and often because of um, overwhelming and difficult experiences, we find things, traits, and characteristics within ourselves that up until that point we didn't know we had within us. And there's something about the relationship, even in this earlier quote you just heard about, um, between the relationship uh, of, of hope and despair, that it is through oftentimes through the really dark and difficult experiences that we're able to make contact with that thing that we seek. It reminds me of a roomy poem somebody once gave to me about, you know, many of us choose to jump into the, the one river that's very cool and calming, and we end up in the river of fire. And those of us who jump into the river of fire end up in the cool waters. And that's, that's this experience, really, that Robert and I are talking about today. That by, by stepping into discomfort, and I don't mean foolish and um, harmful risks, but when we, when we walk into our lives consciously, we can usually find aspects of ourselves 
that we'd we'd probably projected onto other people all along. I've got a couple of things I'd like to talk about before I get to Robert's bio, and then we'll get started. The theme music you're hearing is for, for the whole podcast is from Modern Nations. You can get them at modernnationsmusic.com. And today's song is by some close friends. Holy Moly is the name of the band, and it's created by my friends Joe Rose and Danny Weaver. And a number of other friends have been in and out of the band throughout time. But it's fun to be able to bring some of their music in today. The The class I start teaching begins next week, and this, this podcast is released on uh, July 12th of 2018. So next week, on the 18th of... Uh, Wednesday the 18th, I begin teaching on the body and consciousness. And the the class will be at the Jung Center. Uh, you can get info at uh, for anything the Jung Center does at junghouston.org, J-U-N-G-H-O-U-S-T-O-N.org. The class will be live streamed, so it's available to anyone. But certainly if you're in Houston, come on in. Um, this podcast is... Uh, at the, the Sacred Speaks, and you can get any information on the podcast at thesacredspeaks.com, thesacredspeaks.com. It's also on social media, uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, and it's easy to pass along, and it's easy to listen to anywhere you are, so thanks for for checking in. It's, re- it's really special the when you're able to sit with somebody and get to know them in a new way. I'm on on this project. I've I've sat with dear friends, and I've sat with people that I shook their hand and started talking, mic'd up. This today's conversation is is one of those where I get to speak with somebody that I know, and having a conversation like this deepens the relationship. And I, I urge anybody to have an intentional conversation and and bring about more intimacy in a relationship and get to know each other in a new way. So I'm grateful for Robert's time and his vulnerability because that's that's one thing that shows through in this conversation is Robert's willingness and ability to talk about his story and how his story has helped orient him to a, a vocation, to a, a meaning in life. And, and you'll, you'll get to plenty of this, but it's, it is a, it's a sobering story. So I want to read his bio and then we'll get started. Um, Robert Hilliker received his master's degree from the University of Houston's Graduate Graduate College of Social Work. Following graduation, Robert pursued additional training working as a postgraduate social work fellow at the Menninger Clinic. He then completed a two-year fellowship at the Center for Psychoanalytic Studies. Currently, Robert is a doctoral student at the Institute of Clinical Social Work in Chicago, Illinois. He worked for three years at the Council on Alcohol and Drugs of Houston 
where he served as the manager of executive and treatment services. As a therapist in the adult intensive outpatient program, he provided clinical treatment services to individuals, couples, families, and groups. Robert worked at the Daring Way LLC with Dr. Brene Brown, where he served as the chief clinical officer for over three years. He's facilitated this methodology across diverse settings, including Baylor Psychiatric Clinic, the Menninger Clinic, and the Council on Alcohol and Drugs Houston. In April 2014, Robert co-founded and became the managing partner for the Lovett Center with his business partner, Will Davis. The Lovett Center is a community of helping professionals that offers traditional lease space, part-time office space, as well as opportunities for collaboration and continued learning for therapists. Robert works with patients in private practice at the Lovett Center and serves as a clinical director for the Pathos program at the Lovett Center. Pathos offers intensive outpatient, supportive outpatient, and aftercare programming for people struggling with addiction and co-occurring mental health issues. Robert's private practice focuses on work with professionals, addictive disorders, shame and resiliency, and behavioral health issues. He provides individual, couple, family, and group psychotherapy. And Robert lives in Houston with his wife, Maria, and their daughters. Um, we, we talk a lot of, we, we, through this conversation, we talk a lot about his personal story and how that grounds him in the work that he does. His dissertation is on hope and despair. And I learned a lot through this. I hope you do too. I know you will. Uh, thanks for listening. And um, if you think about it, get on to uh, any of the sources where you find the podcast and rate it, like it, um, comment. That's really helpful, especially on iTunes. Um, it's it's greatly appreciated in the amount of time that you you spend learning in this way. And um, I don't know. I'm, I'm sure if you're listening to this, then you're you're as I am. Uh, you are amazed by um, the amount of information, good solid information that's out there, and uh, I'm I'm grateful for that. Okay, I'll leave it there and bring you Robert. What I was saying just now is that the essence of what I'm doing is I, I set I set out to do this because I really wanted to learn from people that I respect and admire and find that kind of th- thread of interest that I want to pull on a little bit and because mm-hmm. and this is almost uh, redundant in the uh, from the perspective of the podcast but I think each individual person that I talk to. I think that when, no matter how well you know somebody or how uh, peripheral your relationship is, so either way, when you do this and I read your work and I think about how to ask these questions and I think about, you know, what is it that draws me in to be interested in what you do, Mm -hmm. um, that is that that's kind of the essence of what what I'm following through this podcast and the the process itself is about learning so so I had sat I was sitting and you know really wanting to figure out how to do research for a book that I'm working on 
and this idea came to mind and I, I've, I've really enjoyed, mm-hmm. uh, you know, already I've done, you know, 12 of these and it's, uh, it's paid off. Yeah. So I, I'm, I kind of, I, I made the joke right about not wanting to have any deeper conversation. Right. Uh, and then I had to lash out at you. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me to stop because we're, <laughs> you know, because we're doing what two therapists do when they get together. It's like, you know, we're, we're together about one and a half minutes and then <laughs> I'm telling you how I, uh, how I came to this work and what it means to me. And yeah. So, um, so what I was commenting on was actually that, uh, you know, I was listening back to some of the other podcasts and I uh, was listening to your conversation with uh, Jim Hollis, who yeah. I uh, adore. You're going to, I've got an academic crush on Jim Hollis, <laughs> so you're going to have to introduce me and um, I'll get all fanboy on him. Um, but uh, so what I was listening to was knowing your story mm-hmm. of first being this um, really talented traveling musician and then this sea change really mm-hmm. um yeah where you retrain and become a therapist uh, uh jim hollis was a uh, college professor and then goes to zurich retrains and becomes a therapist um <clears throat> and there was some the the thing that prompted the career shift for each of you was a was a monumental event in your own lives somewhere around kind of early midlife you know um for me I've always been a therapist. <laughs> uh, I, I started as a parentified child, but then I became a therapist. Um, so when I was 15, I knew I wanted to be a therapist. Wow. Um, and my grandmother was a therapist. And um, it's kind of a long story. She's not blood related to me, but she raised me like her own. She, I was, you know, um, so she's my grandmother for all intents and purposes. And, um, and I was 15 and I had this conversation with her where, um, where I said, you know, I, I want to be a therapist. And, uh, and she said, if you saw thousands of people in your career and only definitively helped one of them, Hmm. would it be worth it? And I sat with her question and I came back to her and I said, yeah, I think it would. And she said, then you should do it. And that was such, uh, I think I, I realize now she was probably also speaking to the fact that there are so many people that land on your couch that are kind of not really ready to do that work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> work. Some, yeah. So you, you are left questioning, you know, uh, d- have I definitively <laughs> helped this person or not? I mean, I think... Uh, and then the other the other plague that all therapists I think have to endure is that um, I, I every every anywhere from two to five years now I can look back and go what was I thinking you know I was basically an adolescent doing adolescent treatment and telling parents how to parent their adolescent and I think oh and I did that for seven years and then I had kids you know <laughs> and then like I don't know what to tell you about your adolescent you know <laughs> and. Then, <laughs> And then, um, you know, so it's, it's funny, you know, to, to constantly, and I think that's just what we have to endure is that every, you know, two to five years, whatever long that window of, of kind of learning and metabolizing new things and then looking back and going, boy, I sure could have handled that differently. Um, and I think, I think that's probably how, you know, 
career therapists in their 70s feel. Like, boy, if I knew then what I know now, I sure would have been helpful to some people. But anyway. So. I, mean, I had that thought this morning. You know, that, that's yeah. something that I think is, uh, I think that's pretty natural. Yeah. That. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I was walking with my youngest daughter. Don't, I have no idea where it came from. This was last night. It's like 10 p.m. trying to get her to fall back asleep. And so I'd take her a little stroller around the block. And How old is she? Um, she's 15 months. Yeah, we're yeah. aligned there. Got a yeah. 19 month old. Yeah, yeah. So I've got five, three, and one-year-old daughters, um, which is amazing. Um, I, I don't know. I think... I know, I know this is, uh, women are the better sex. <laughs> I, I really, I don't know. Men are just, uh, you know, they, they, so it's, people are like, oh gosh, you know, it's a lot of hormones in your house or whatever. You know, people say weirdly, strangely kind of misogynistic things to me all the time. Like, oh, don't you wish you had a boy? And I'm like, what? Mm-hmm. No. Um, I mean, sure, I guess, but not like, you know definitively like I wanted that but anyway so we're walking around the block and this guy pops into my head I haven't seen this guy I I saw him a handful of times I for sure haven't seen him um in five years right um and I I just kept thinking like I wonder where he's at um and I wonder if this was helpful to him in some way you know and, um, and it reminded me of that Yalom book where he's, you know, the dying group therapist, the, the, big the, one? the, the Schopenhauer cure, no, uh-huh. uh, where he's a, you know, it's a fictionalized version of a group therapist that's dying. Um, that's not a spoiler. You've learned that in like the first three pages. Um, but basically, uh, you know, he, he just, uh, he, he, he's always do it. He's when faced with death, he, he does this kind of retrospective on his career and, um, Hmm. is kind of calling old patients like, you know, how are you doing? You know, wanting, I think some, some, um, uh, sense that he was helpful to them. So anyway, it's kind of a random thought. (laughs) No, I I don't, I don't, I don't actually think so. Mm. Um, you've got a couple of things in there that are really interesting though about, raising girls and kind of being on a walk and having a thought about an old, an older client uh, that you've seen. And I, my, my question or my, my fantasy there was that you, there's something about being affected by this work that's inevitable. Mm-hmm. And that so often we're, you know, people come into therapy and depending on what kind of theoretical orientation you have that, that will inform your presence in the room. But I'm, I'm willing to bet that any therapist allows themselves to be affected by the people they work with, because if they don't, there's a, there's a big problem. I think, um, Jung said something about the, you know, chemical reaction, uh, between two people as they come together and it's a creative act. And that I'm paraphrasing, of course, that if, if, if we don't show up fully with, the people, and I think that goes for any conversation or any relationship. If we don't show up fully, um, then we're playing hide and seek, and mm-hmm. that affects the container of the relationship. And so that's 
that's that kind of little tangent that I heard you go on about mm-hmm. kind of moving into that world of therapy and how mm-hmm. important it is to to be present. Yeah, um, I, and I just thought of you know re- reading um, Carl Menninger early mm-hmm. er, early in um, my kind of postgraduate career. So I, I worked as a paraprofessional, you know, in the field, kind of as a peer facilitator in an after school program. Worked my way up in an adolescent treatment, and then um, you know finished undergrad, went to grad school, and in my second year of grad school, landed at, at Baylor Psychiatry Clinic under Dr. Gabbard. Which was wow. which was wonderful. Yeah, um, that's a big name. Yeah, Glenn Glenn Gabbard is just a he's a lovely. And I've read a person. I've, I've yeah. read a number of his articles. Um, yeah, and and he's he's a he's written prolifically. Yeah. I mean, I think he's he's got you know several hundred, right. you know, <laughs> literally several hundred you know peer reviewed articles and um, you know umpteen books. I don't know how many kind of primers on psychotherapy, but. Um, but the most basic tenet is that I think he's a, a real person. Um, and mm. his, you know, the, the one thing I think he really pounded home um, with all the, the PGY threes and fours and the social work students and the, um, the uh, postdoc psychology folks, um, all, all of that, you know, the, the message was really um, in this whole interdisciplinary setting, the message was always, um, when in doubt, be human. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I went to Menninger, and I, I can't say I learned this from Menninger, but I, I learned it from reading the early works of Carl Menninger. Um, uh, uh, and then I learned it certainly from people like John Allen and um, and other people who were mentors of mine there. But, um, but basically... Um, uh, the piece that I ran into was in the vital balance uh, is this chapter called the intangibles and, and Menninger talks about Carl Menninger talks about uh, faith, hope, and love. Um, and uh, he says, you know, we, we have to facilitate a, a deep and trusting faith in the process. Um, the patient has to trust you and have faith in you. Um, you have to love your patient. You really have to love them, like truly love them. Um, and I think people don't get that about the therapist um, sometimes. Um, that, uh, you know, other professions that bill by the hour, I think you don't really feel like they love you. Um, you know, your attorney or whatever, your, your physician that, you know, has a fee for service. Um, but the therapist really is, um, it's essential that they love their patients and that they show up with their whole heart. And, um, and then he said, and, and our other job is about, um, hope, you know, um, that we, um, the way he put it was we tend the flames of hope, um, uh, that we give people some sense about a hope for their future. Um, and, uh, so uh, that, that to me, those are some essential ingredients. And that's kind of what I, I, I heard you saying, particularly the love piece. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, part of why I was thinking about this person is I really care about what happened to him. Yeah. Um, uh, so it really matters. It really matters. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, the, you, you said hope, and of course we're going to get into that. Um, the, the one thing though, 
that my little tangent where I think we're going to probably think in tangents today. Yeah. But <laughs> so we'll, we'll just try to basically how I yeah, think anyway. <laughs> we'll try to keep, keep each other accountable yeah, through our well, uh, leaf breadcrumbs, know. right? Might need a third <laughs> party in here to mediate that. Yeah. So if every if ever anybody listening is lost, it's uh it's not your fault. <laughs> it's it, well, it's it's a diagnostic. You don't have ADD That's if right. you get lost in this. If you follow, if you track with it, you have untreated ADD. Your, your, your participants here today yeah. may just just be that uh, yeah. that category. Yeah. Um. So, h- how do you feel? I know you get it when somebody looks at you and says, "You don't really care. I'm paying you." Oh, that it breaks my heart. Mm. Um, it really does because I'm like, uh, y- you know, and I. Well, and I've tried to prove it to them, you know. I've done that route of like, well, oh, I'll see you for free, you know. <laughs> it's like that doesn't usually end well. Um, there's there, there's an exchange of 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 uh, energy, and that's part of it. Um, uh, so mm-hmm. you know, money is a is a part of the the therapeutic um, process, and and enters the relationship, and actually, I think adds a, a dynamic that's really important. Um, and uh you know uh, what it affords uh, what what the the financial exchange affords is that um you have 100% of my attention um yeah. and that i can be fully present because i'm not worried about how to provide for my family um right so i i'm not thinking what do I, you know i don't everything goes out of my mind when i'm in the room mm-hmm. i um you know um uh, Gail Claybor taught me this, that she, she walks in, uh, she sees the threshold into the therapist's uh, consulting room as um, uh, kind of a sacred threshold. Yeah. Um, and that when she enters, the, she has the patient enter first and she bows to the patient. Um, she takes a little bow. Um, sometimes just in her mind, if she thinks that the patient would be weirded out, but sometimes <laughs> uh, you know, quite physically, she'll bow to the patient. And... Um, and then comes and you know has a seat, and I think about that often. Um, I think that's what we're we're doing, and um, so yeah, that that is an interesting thing. But it does when when patients have said that, I think it really breaks my heart, um, and um, because what it what it usually means for them um, is that uh, people that really ought to have loved them uh, have failed in some significant capacity, right? Um, uh, some big way, uh, love, uh, and, and the loving relationship has faltered. Um, and, uh, and so giving them the space to have that experience of me, I think is important too. not just moving to rectify it, but trying to understand where it comes from. Um, but, um, I, I think over time, if people can stay the course with treatment, they understand, um, how much we care for them. Um, and I think it, sometimes it's very small things about like, just how we hold them in our minds, um, you know, little little things that uh, aren't always uh, made explicit, but are uh, become kind of an understanding that you have in the treatment. Yeah, and I, I don't know about your training, but nothing I, most of what I've learned in, in being a therapist, I didn't 
reading the books? Yeah, none of it. I mean, <laughs> outside of, I mean, there's wonderful theories and 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 all of that. Yes. But uh, but I think it's why I've drifted towards being kind of a relational analyst. Is mm-hmm. that you know there are uh, that you know the the criticism and I think also the compliment of relational uh, approach to analytic work is basically that there are as many. Um, uh, relational theories as there are relational analysts. <laughs> so, um, so I, I'm not, I don't like the idea of being pinned down as any one thing. Um, that really bugs me. And so, <laughs> that's why we get along. you know, yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> one of the you reasons. Know, and, and, and that's not, that's not hiding out behind the title of kind of, you know, the eclectic. Yeah, I yeah. think that that's like, you know, being a drag, a jack of all trades and a master of none, you can, um, you know, I know a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a, and enough to be dangerous. That right. that worries me. Um, like when people actually have no theoretical basis for what they're doing. Um, they're just like, yeah, I just kind of show up and, you know, read some stuff on person-centered therapy and I think I'm good. And I'm like, uh, I don't know. I mean, no knock to person-centered therapy, but it's just, like you said, I... I the textbooks will not teach you how to be with people. Um, right. And and frankly, the biggest thing that taught me how to be, uh, how to sit with other people um, was, of course, sitting with myself. Um, I think that any therapist that uh, has not done their own work is dangerous. Um, I, I, I really believe that because what's what's unknown to them and outside of their awareness has the potential to be really harmful to someone else. Um and, uh, and so w- we have to do our own work. Um, <clears throat> and I, th- I think that's, <clears throat> I, you know, before I was 15, um, yeah, I talked about at 15, I knew I wanted to be a therapist, but it was because I was intervened on at 13. Well, can we, yeah, I, I just want to, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I want to push into that more yeah. in case you were going to go elsewhere. Cause I, no. I, I'd love to hear the autobiography. The autobiography. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, it's 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 interesting. Um it's a wild story. Uh <laughs> um which I'm happy to go into. I'm I'm pretty open about it. Um it, it's better when it's like this in my voice because uh uh Houston Business Journal just um it was a neat thing and I feel very appreciative, but they honored me as the one of the top 40 business professionals under 40 mm-hmm. in, in Houston, which was a great honor, and I'm, I'm thankful for it. Um, I'm thankful for the folks that nominated me and people who wrote in on my behalf, but um, they got my story completely wrong, and they published all this stuff, and I, I had to warn my mother. It's like, oh, you know. Um, so it said something like, you know, a mother who shot speed on the streets of Montrose and da-da-da-da, which I, I told my mom that, and she was like, well, I did do a lot of speed, which was, which was so sweet of my mom because yeah. I was like mortified that they put that because it was actually yeah. not the context in which it was being used. The whole idea uh, wasn't it had nothing to do with my mother. It was the idea of a life that's come full circle that she was here in Montrose, and then I brought the center for healing and placed it in Montrose, right? And how what? how kind of spiritually strange that is right uh to 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 land in this place probably you know right around where my you know my mother dropped out in 10th grade and and ran away from home and 
um, had a really uh, uh, tough life. Uh, my dad had a really interesting and I think uh, uh, difficult life in a, di- in a very different um, direction. So I won't get into too much of their stories because that's really theirs to tell. But yeah. that, that's what I was so frustrated with the HBGA article about was not getting kind of the context. It was like, look, this, uh, this is not about my, my mother's wonderful. She's lovely. And we have a great relationship today. And, you know, she ha- has, you know, been sober for, gosh, you know, 40 years or something. I mean, mm-hmm. I've never, um, she was sober long before I was, was ever born. Um, so, that was not the relevant part of it. The relevant part was the idea of kind of um, spiritually kind of coming full circle in some way hmm. um, and feeling like um, there's been some reconciliation or healing and a kind of intergenerational process of trauma that has, you know, happened in my family. So there's a long history of addiction and mental health issues in my family. Um, so I come by this work, honestly. Um, and, I was a total uh, wild child, um, but got intervened on incredibly early. So um, there was physical abuse in my home from a a former stepfather, verbal abuse and emotional abuse. It was um, not a happy place. It was a pretty um pretty scary place to grow up um in a lot of ways and uh I'm the oldest of five I have three sisters and a brother and um and we had uh I mean I I would say we were pretty poor um kind of a working poor situation in which my mom worked really really hard um, to provide and my stepdad did little or nothing at all. (laughs) And, um, and, and then, um, which which I'll just say this about poverty. It's really interesting. My, my wife's family didn't have a lot of money, but that became the basis for being closer. Right. Um, like they, that became kind of an organizing, uh, part of their, their family identity and they didn't, it didn't tear them apart. And my family had the opposite effect. Poverty really, um, you know, uh, if there was financial strain, someone was going to get, someone was going to get it, you know, and that didn't happen to my wife's family. So it's a really interesting thing just about how, you know, factors of resiliency and how people respond to, to hardship. But anyway, so, um, uh, ha- had this early childhood experience that I think was not not optimal uh, <laughs> in any particular way, and then, um, but certainly, you know. So, so I was talking about this with someone recently in Chicago. Um, the ACEs test, the the adverse childhood experiences mm-hmm. uh, test. It's got like fourteen questions, and I went through it, and I, I had all fourteen. <laughs> of adverse childhood experiences. But then, and this is the redeeming part, there's um, there's a resiliency piece. And it's factors of resiliency. And it's also got 14 questions. And I had 14 of those factors of resiliency. Um, I had a clear sense that my parents loved me, um, despite, 
you know, th- their challenges and, and how they showed up or didn't show up in certain ways. Um, I, I had really clear mentorship. Um, I, um, early on got noticed for being, um, uh, bright and capable. And so that advanced me and, and got a lot of attention. I also happened to be athletic. So I got a lot of, um, attention from coaches <clears throat> And one coach in particular who's still, you know, his son is one of my best friends. Um, and uh, this guy, Art Cortez, who's just a lovely, amazing man who um, who mentored me, who called me Mijo. I was his son, mm-hmm. you know, and he treated me like a son and um, coached me all through college in, in hockey. And um, and um, teachers who, who uh, you know, affirmed... Uh, that I had some intelligence and some ability and, and pushed me, um, you know, those were all the, the kind of factors of resiliency. And then was, there was therapy, early, early intervention. Um, so 13 years old, intervened on, um, taken to Carol DeLongshan's office. Yeah, I don't know if you know her. She's still around. She's been doing interventions for I don't know how many years. And um, I like to think I'm one of the success stories of her career. If she if she if she needs to definitively know she's helped one person, it would be me. Um, you know, and uh, got intervened on. Got sent to treatment at 13. <clears throat> Where'd you go? Um, you know, I went to. Um, an alternative peer group. Uh, mm-hmm. That's what we now call them, APGs. They didn't even have that name then. Um, but it was Lifeway, um, which is still around, though, I think, a very different iteration of, yeah. of what it once was. And um, and uh, and so I kind of came up in that alternative peer group uh, world. Um, I lived with another family for a period of time that um, that was kind of a, a practice they did a lot back then was they would kind of take you out of the environment, move you in with another family. And uh, it was just given like incredible support and, and love and care and um, and attention. And uh, and I stayed sober from the very start, um, which surprises me even now. <laughs> so because because pre pre-intervention <clears throat> i'm assuming the, the nature of the intervention was substance yeah substance abuse and i had no intention of wanting to quit sure. uh, you know there was there was not uh i was on the way to school to buy a quarter pound of marijuana i was not in the mood for right. an intervention at the time that that happened you know <laughs> i was a freshman in high school literally that's when the intervention happened yeah. you were on i a- yeah yeah, I had come up with some interesting scheme to get a bunch of money from people. I don't remember how, but I had scratched together several hundred dollars and I was going to buy a bunch of marijuana. Yeah, I mean, that was, that was and and then, uh, you know, in a moment, um, my life changed. Well, two questions. How early did you start? Uh, eight. Yeah, eight to 13. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, and like a pen drops. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I have a five-year-old, right? And I think like in three more years. What? Yeah, like yeah, man. her using drugs, alcohol, you know, tobacco, whatever. I, I mean, that's insane, right? It's crazy. Do, do you have? Um, do you recall what you were thinking and? 
working through in that moment? Do you, can you do you make contact eight, with that? Yeah. Um, I I think I mean a piece of it was I I wanted desperately to belong, and um, in in um, in the absence of belonging, I think we attempt to fit in, and yeah. uh, that was one way. And then you know I I I drank for the reason that any person with an alcohol issue drinks essentially is that they really like the effect produced by alcohol. Um, you know, I like the altered state of consciousness. I like the, um, you know, my, my favorite thing was hallucinogens. Mm -hmm. I loved to, to alter reality. Um, I think there's something that feels, um, I, I think there's something really primitive about it actually, Mm -hmm. um, that people, uh, want. And I think even then I was seeking to have a different type of experience and there was some numbing and some escapism. I mean, um, it's a great way to not be in touch with your feelings. Um, you know, or to, to, to try and, you know, reduce suffering in some way. Um, so like I've always understood addiction, like I get it. Um, I get why people, you know, I get why I did it. Um, and the reasons I did it tend, tend to be in alignment with, you know, the stuff I hear from others. And how'd you get it? Mm. I mean, we live in America, right? It's, it's like, (laughs) it's incredibly easy, but my, my first drink ever was with my dad at eight. Um, who had on again, off again sobriety and is sober today and doing really well. My, you know, like I said, my mother's sober. My, I've got grandparents in recovery. I mean, we, we actually now have three generations of our family in recovery, which is amazing. They say it takes three generations to break a cycle. So, um, I'm, I'm hopeful for my children, you know, I really am. So, yeah, that's, it. but how did we get it? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty easy mm-hmm. uh, to get drugs and alcohol. Alcohol's actually, you know, harder to get than, than drugs. <laughs> They've got it all locked yeah, down. Yeah, it's all locked up. <clears throat> but, uh, but, you know, there's a, uh, you know, drug dealers are not generally scrupulous people. Right. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, harming the life of a child is not something they're particularly, you know, feel you know like they've got a real hard line about uh so do you I mean, from eight to to 13, 13 yeah you know, yeah uh i don't know i i don't quite know how to get into that question that i want to ask but i think it's uh, c- consciously did did you have those thoughts about belonging i mean did you have those kinds of conscious thoughts at that age about you know hurt yeah. and belonging and <sighs> Yeah, you know, I I remember absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I do. I remember I walked into this. Um, I, I uh, walked into Mrs. Price's fourth grade class at a new school, and I changed a lot of elementary schools. I'd gone to a number of different elementaries, and I had skipped a grade. I skipped um, uh, what's third grade. So I was young for my class because I had skipped a grade. You skipped because of your <coughs> brightness? Yeah. Um, I always say it's because I worked hard, but I think at that, it, it, yes. I mean, I was in a Montessori school, um, and then I went to a public school, uh, 
that wasn't Montessori and I had, I had already, I mastered the curriculum for that age group or whatever. And so they, they advanced me a grade. That's not really fitting the mold of, you know, a nine year old is using drugs yeah. and yet advancing, you know, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know that's that but that's one of those resiliency things is that people really saw something and 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 looked it seems out like for you me. have um, something inside of you that yeah is. I I think yeah I, I people have always said I'm an old soul I think I was born way later than I ought to be maybe that's why I like these old cars I, <laughs> too. I like these old you know really old cars and uh, you know old thing I I don't know I don't um, I, you know, I sometimes feel like a like an old man with all the like social media stuff and the lack of personal privacy. I'm like, ah, I don't know, I don't mm-hmm. like this. I don't, I don't think this is me. Um, and then, okay, so so the question was, I've lost it. What was the? <laughs> well, I was talking we? about how you're making it through school, advancing oh, yeah, yeah, third yeah. grade. Oh and no, and about fitting about fitting in, right? Mm-hmm. So. Um, so we, I show up to Mrs. Price's fourth grade ah, yeah. uh, class, right? And, um, and I recognize that the kids don't really look like me. Like mm-hmm. they're clearly more affluent, um, m- m- many of them, at least the kids I wanted to be connected to. Um, uh, and I remember noticing that I had holes in my shirt. And I was terribly ashamed and um and so i started stealing clothes um that was the to fit in to look the part right and um and i think that's probably a big part of of you know just a piece of my shadow that i've had to look at is um to ensure that what i'm doing you know because i can look the part you know i'm a you know decent looking you know straight white male in america like i can i can look the part but but i um you know but does it feel authentic does it actually reflect who i am you know um and you know so being being true to myself is a is is a really important thing which is why which is i think the flavor that people get in in therapeutic work with me is that i really am just kind of the same person in all settings like the way we're talking right now is pretty much how i'd show up Mm -hmm. in therapy and pretty much how i show up at home and pretty much you know i mean with the exception of some peaks and valleys you know like (laughs) this is kind of it you know you're getting kind of who i am um in in most contexts so um so anyway, that that's uh, but I was I was absolutely conscious of it. Yeah. 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 That I, I that I didn't fit and that I needed to at, at the very least that that I could be a chameleon of sorts and look the part and that that would. Uh, but then there's all that kind of imposter uh, experience of like, I don't really fit, you know, and, and, and I can also remember when it was really through my education it was in college where I felt like no I actually do fit here like it was the first time like all through high school was kind of even you know I mean it's like high school it's it's you know it's sure <laughs> we're all every, every high school kid is pretending that flailing around pre- yeah, yeah. Pre- pretending they know who they are and uh, you know I had a, a 1988 Suburban with you know a surfboard strapped to it and 
four 12 inch subwoofers in the back. You know, I mean, I had no idea what I was, you know, it's like, what I, I, yeah, like listening to rap music one day and I'm, I'm, you know, shredding waves the next day. I mean, I don't, you know, so, but college, I felt like, oh, this is like, I'm at home here. Like I really, and I felt like myself and I, it was the first time I could really own probably, and not in, in, even more so in graduate school where I could really feel like um, this is where I'm supposed to be. Where'd you go to school? I went to University of Houston for mm-hmm. undergrad and grad school. I was already working in the field and I wanted to stay in Houston. This was always home base for me and my kind of recovery circle. And then um, and then my PhD, I wanted to be, I wanted to go somewhere else. I oh, didn't want, yeah. you know, I wanted to mix it up. And I um, got my, P- I'm actually all but dissertation. I'm finishing that up. Ugh. Gosh, yeah. you know about that, yeah. I do. And 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 it's just <laughs> you know it's I gotta just I, it's time to time to buckle down and, and finish it up. I've got about 150 pages written. And my wife um, took a picture of our uh, yeah child in her belly <laughs> and said, "Put this on your desk so that you can motivate your ass." Yeah, program. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. I still have it there. It's like yeah, taped on all these young you know books from young and. I, nice. I look up and I love the sentiment, nice, you know, yeah. little motivator. But yeah. it, it does come down to this, like, yeah, tie your ass in a chair and, yeah. But you know, it, you just reminded me. Speaking of distance, we're going on. <laughs> we're back and forth. <laughs> See, at some point, we're going to talk about hope. I think. No, we'll get there. Yeah, <laughs> but, um, which is my dissertation, hope and despair. Um, but you reminded me of when, um. Oh, so so two things. One, I I, I did. Yeah, I went to Chicago for my mm-hmm. um, PhD and um, went to the Institute for Clinical Social Work, and I, um, which is a psychodynamic program, and I I really um, I'd say mostly <laughs> loved it and uh, loved a lot of the professors and people I got to work with, and um, uh, so. Um, and and loved being at the University of Houston, which has really changed and grown a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and really proud of the graduate college that I I went to is just I got to climbing the rakes yeah. and do yeah. You, we that got was... to see Laverne Cox um, at the scholarship luncheon, and yeah. they've just done some amazing things. I'm really proud for them. Um, and I think it makes my degree worth more. So that's good. <laughs> <laughs> um, but <clears throat> so. When I started in the doctoral program, my wife bought me this computer. Um, she bought me a MacBook Pro, which I love. Um, if Apple wants to send me a free one or something, this is it's fine. <laughs> I was listening to Colbert talk about Stephen Colbert talk about how people just he mentions stuff on TV to send know, them like, stuff. You yeah. know, he's like, yeah. So he's mentioning the new Corvette, so he can get yeah. Corvette and stuff like this. Um, but I don't think the reach the reach of this podcast. I, is very- <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. You know, it's like you, get, you never know who's going to take a bump on SoundCloud and sure. it takes off, and you know, um, because you know everybody's looking for long form conversations these days. Uh, I know I am. <laughs> I am. Yeah. Uh, I can't say the the general media. Yeah, they is want looking for that. Little, you know, little, sound, little sound bites. But mm-hmm. um, so. Um, so my wife bought me this computer, which was a lovely thing to do. And with it was this card and it said, um, your entire academic career up to this point, you've studied other people's theories. 
now it's time for you to develop your own. And that was the, you know, I just, you know, it, to develop your own thinking. Um, and it was so, she's full of profound. Wow. <laughs> like, I know. It's, it's, it's so beautiful. I know. Wow. I know. That was so, so cool because that's what we do in a doctoral program yeah. is, you know, we, we, we generate some original thought mm. and uh, it's hard to do. It's hard. <laughs> you know, I, a lot of things I thought were novel <laughs> concepts, I get into the literature review and it's like, oh boy, it's, you know, this actually is the largest body of research on this topic is this little thing I thought was yeah, you think novel. It's, yeah, you yeah. <laughs> but, absolutely. Yeah. It's intimidating. Mm-hmm. Well, um, so I think, I think there you actually provide us a, an entry yeah. point into talking about kind of where you are today academically what you're working on on your dissertation. I'm, I'm, I'm a little curious if there's not a couple things in there to talk about your personal life, how it, maybe how, how, how your personal story sets you up to be a researcher of hope and despair. Oh, yeah. Oh, completely, right? Yeah. Uh, that whole research is me search. Yeah. <laughs> kind of, you know, yeah. I mean, uh, sure. I mean, uh, that that's... I mean, selfishly, that's that's what anybody is researching. I think you, know? you use my line, by the way. I was going to oh, say that. that. It's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So, so um, sure. I think you know. It's one. So I I remember um, my my aunt gave me this little this little cross stitched Bible verse uh, when I was a kid. Uh, I still have it, and and it was one of the first. Um, I'm also a recovering Baptist, so I, you know, that I, that's part of my history. There is just um, getting kind of um, spiritually wounded by by the church in early yeah. life, and having to kind of sort through that, which I think is, um, and finding that um, it's why I think I'm so drawn to people like Bill Curley and. Um, right. and, and, uh, Methodist and Jim Hollis minister and, into, sure. Yeah. yeah uh, because, um, and Matt Russell, another, you know, spiritual kind of mentor of mm-hmm. mine that's at St. Paul's as well that have, uh, really what they describe as doing psycho spiritual work. Yeah. Um, you know, but so I, w- so I'm recovering Baptist. I, I <laughs> um, uh, got uh, so i remember lots of bible verses i've got them all in my head but jeremiah 29 11 it's um, a nice obscure one to remember yeah jeremiah 29 11 this was the cross-stitch bible verse for my aunt and it's um uh, for i know the plans i have for you declares the lord plans to prosper you um and not to harm you plans to mm-hmm. give you a hope and a future and i held on to that like you wouldn't believe um like it was a promise from God that I was going to have a future. Um, and I held it, I think in a way that, um, uh, like, I, I don't know. It's, it's weird. I'm not, um, I've never feared dying in like accidents or something. I, this is going to sound kind of, you know, whatever it sounds like it'll land on people however it does. But, um, it's the truth. Uh, I've never worried about like dying in a plane crash or in an auto accident or something because I, I just think that's not how I, that's not how I go. 
Um, it has no basis in reality. I can get in a car accident when I leave here, and <laughs> that will be the end of it. Or as um, Pittman once said, you might get hit by a beer truck. Yeah, you <laughs> might get hit by a beer truck. You might, whatever, you know. Um, but I, I've never felt like that's how I go. Yeah. And I feel like uh, it. there's always been this expectant piece in that, which is like, I haven't done what I'm here to do yet. Um, mm-hmm. And I still feel that way. Um, I, I'm not done. Um, I'm not done. Not even close. So, um, so I've never, it, 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 that verse, I think gave me that kind of spirit, that idea. And, um, and this belief that, that the God of my understanding would not set out to harm me. And so I could separate out the harm that I was experiencing from, from God, which a lot of people blame God for mm-hmm. the kind of, you know, that this idea that, you know, why would God let me suffer in this way? And I, I was like, no, I, I don't, I don't think, you know, I don't think that's how it works. <laughs> you know, I don't think, I, I remember thinking like, I don't, I don't think this is God. I think this is people invoking the name of God to do whatever, you know, like, um, uh, Jeff Sessions invoking, the Bible to separate children from their families, uh, you know, which is uh, deplorable. I don't care what side of the aisle you're on politically. Right. If you're left, right, center, doesn't matter. Um, what we know from our profession is that separating, you know, separating children from their parents is um, has a devastating impact. Um, lifelong. Lifelong devastating impact on, on, on their attachment and... and um, all of that, but, um, and therefore you know, and, the and, system and every yeah, system they're in yeah, and yeah. onward and onward. Yeah. Just. <clears throat> and so things like invoking the name of God in that, in, in that regard to kind of justify people's bad behavior, I think, um, I, I never bought it. Um, even as a kid, I was like, nah, no, no, I don't buy it. Um, and you know, so that was, that was a saving grace for me. Um, but that, that, that was my early, that, that was my first introduction to hope. So, so when did it become, as you said, right, you think, you think you have this novel idea and you realize there's this huge amount of research that yeah. other people have been saying it yeah. for a long time, which is definitely my well, experience. Yeah, so the novel idea was like, hey, I think that hope and despair are in this kind of dialectic, <laughs> you know? And, and Eureka! Then, and it was like, uh, and it was during my fellowship at Minninger. This was part, this was my fellowship project that mm-hmm. I then turned into a dissertation in my in my in my doctoral program. Um, so yeah, I, I, I felt like, and, and the, the premise was basically this, like I kept seeing people, you know, John Allen talks about hope. Carl Menninger was talk, was writing about hope all the way back in the, the, you know, um, fifties and sixties. And, um, and so I, I was really taken by how, hope was a, a cornerstone to, to therapeutic intervention that, uh, you know, John Allen calls it borrowed hope, right? Mm-hmm. That we, he, he, we, we actively become brokers of hope. We lend hope freely to patients, you know, and we have them borrow our hope until they can facilitate some of their own. And, um, that's a really useful tech technique or technical consideration too, for the treatment. But, um, so I started to think about how hope was central to that. And then this idea, this kind of, uh, that was then, you know, <laughs> completely, uh, already a large body of study, but, um, was, Hey, wait a second. Maybe we have hope not in spite of despair, but actually because of it. 
right? Um, and uh, and that's when I found, you know, um, uh, there's these different notions about about hope. Um, uh, Nietzsche said that the hope that uh, uh, hope is the worst of all evils for it prolongs the torments of man, right? Which really, that represents the kind of classic, that that's the Greek notion of hope. Um, yeah, like stop uh, doing that stuff. Yeah, don't imagine like, things that don't, aren't real. Yeah, that, don't, uh, uh, yeah. don't do that. Um, and uh, and then what Menninger says is that he calls it the Jewish notion of hope, right? Um, which is hope born out of misadventure and disaster. Hmm. Um, and he basically says the whole... The whole history of the Jews is 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 a story of hope, born out of despair, um, and then he says. So as he asks this question of of therapists, he says, "Are we Greeks or are we Jews?" Um, which I love. I think that's probably one of the best, uh, one of the best lines he's he he wrote. Um, so he says, "Are we Greeks or are we Jews?" And yeah. and he really advocates for this Jewish notion of um, that we bring hope as as um, a part of understanding people's struggle. Um, so could you define it? What, what do you think? Like people have uh, the thing, uh, this is my area of research is looking at layers of reality. Yeah. You know, I, th- I think what I'm hearing in the Greek de- definition of the term and the Jewish definition of the term, they're just different orientations to the same yeah. idea. And so it's, their definition is informing, like you even said it before, the definition of God will inform how you relate to reality. Mm-hmm. The definition of hope will inform how you relate to this. Is it is it uh, untethered and harmful because it presents a false front, or is mm-hmm. it um, does it provide in the imaginal landscape something of a of a possibility that is to be directed toward? Right. You know that's. <clears throat> Yeah, so it, it it's interesting. I, I think when reviewing the literature, you really get kind of four quadrants, right? You have um, uh, you have theoretical ideas about it that are kind of from a one person psychology, and then a two person psychology, and then you have people who think of it as adaptive, and others who think of it as defensive. And um, so you can have an adaptive one-person psychology view of hope. You can have a defensive one-person psychology view of hope. Or you can see it as a two-person psychological phenomenon, something that's occurring between people that's relational. And that can be defensive or adaptive. Mm. Um, and <clears throat> and those that that's what the, the, the literature review on hope in, in, in terms of the psychoanalytic literature and some of the other bodies of literature on hope really... Um, uncovered for me was this that that kind of those mm-hmm. quadrants there or whatever you might think about like that it's almost like a Jahari's window yeah how it kind of looks um, um, uh, so I think about hope as a two-person psychological phenomenon I think it, of hope as a relational construct most of the literature out there looks at hope as a as a trait or characteristic um, so it, it thinks about hope as an individual trait um, I think of it as a relational process. So there's the one person versus two person kind of split um, in yeah. some of the thinking. So there are some different operational definitions. I think there's also a confounding of terms where people use um, wishing and optimism mm-hmm. uh, to, to also convey, uh, you know, hope. And I think they're different. 
I think that wishing um, and optimism can't bear the weight of despair. Um, that 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 hope is really can kind of hold uh, doubt and despair. Well, that just clicked um, a lot. I yeah, mean, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you for that. Yeah, that's that that is what I have seen in interviewing people and talking about this, and I've kind of reached a point of saturation. I feel like in in the data collection piece of of human subject research on this topic because um, now if we had if I asked you a series of questions um, about hope and despair we, you know turning the tables of the interview we would uh, we would uh, we would basically have a conversation that I've now had with with dozens of people um, and there would be themes about lightness and dark that would come up there would be um, ideas about I mean all, and and so there's there is a kind of universal way of thinking about this that um and uh and I'm trying to get at that in some of the research I'm trying to understand you know what what are some of the larger universal truths about this concept um outside of these these different um you know um multiple truths and realities that individuals hold in their perspective what's kind of you know a a larger truth in it too um and I, I'm, because I'm I'm torn between you know I'm ultimately a constructivist right I th- I think there are multiple truths and realities, mm-hmm. um, but I do think that there are these I do think like the positivist worldview that 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 there are some big universal truths um, about what about things and um, and this universe we live in or multiverse if you're into that <laughs> <laughs> I think it's got to be paradoxical so, yeah. <laughs> well, th- what I guess I, I don't know. I'm aligning with you in, in research. You know, you and I are doing different kinds of research, but we're me searching. Um, mm-hmm. What was the process like for you? Or what? I guess a better question there is what what stood out? What surprised you as, when you got into the the work on hope and despair? Um, w- one was that. Uh, you know, Carl Menninger wrote in in uh, in the Vital Balance, and I'm trying to remember now. Um, I think it was '64. Um, I'll have to go back and look when he wrote that. But um, he basically said, "Look, hope is this really important concept, and yet very little is written about it." And fast forward, the stuff that's written about it is about um, is is the largest body of research on hope is um, in the nursing literature I read that in what in yeah. your article it's it, about chronic illness it's about dealing with terminal illness and how which to is, have hope in the face of terminal illness and and I think one of the things I'd circled about um, you talk you talked about the, the kind of the biology of hope mm. and how it increases immune function so it's yeah. not it's not just just you know. Yeah, that's that's Jerome Groupman's work, who's a oncologist, hematologist that that writes a lot about um, hope and um, and and the 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 health determinant kind of quality of it. Um, so yeah, the, the, there. So that the work that I found was really about that and about. Hope is this kind of trait-specific thing. Like uh, the last time I checked, there were something like 26 different measures for um, for hope, um, how to scale it, and but it's all related to hope as a kind of individual process. 
So nobody still is looking at kind of the relational quality of hope. Um, and that doesn't mm-hmm. even get into, I, I think, the the larger like hope um, it, 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 in a kind of systemic way. Like, for example, I, I talk about how Obama, that was his, you know, I mean, if you remember that first campaign Absolutely. was hope. Mm-hmm. That was, he ran a, a, a campaign that was on hope, which has some fatal flaws uh, because in many ways, I think, and, and this is a, a, a weird aside um, for people who like Wilfred Beyond, um, basically, uh, he was... Obama, I think, was a was a cultural manifestation of of a kind of pairing group, um, a pairing basic assumption in which we came together and came together and created um, uh, this hoped for Messiah. Mm-hmm. But the problem is that the Messiah has to remain unborn; it has to be hoped for because when the hope is realized, um, what do we do to the Messiah? We crucify him. Yeah. Um, so, which is what we what we did, I think in many ways. Um, uh, so and anyway, that's kind of just a, uh, whole other idea about hope in a, in a larger sense. But, um, the, the, the most novel thing, um, that, that I found was that, uh, that there was this, um, really kind of more or less cognitive therapist, um, out of, uh, university of Kansas named Snyder. Um, who knew Carl Menninger and and had been introduced to the concept of hope from Carl Menninger, but he did this really, his body of work didn't really get any traction because it was called like Rainbows of the Mind or something like that. It just didn't, it felt completely flat and got no traction, which is unfortunate because his ideas were really wonderful. And he basically said, look, um, hope seems to be derivative of these things. Like the factors associated with hope are um, uh, goals, agency, you know, people's belief in their ability to mm-hmm. affect change in their own life. So personal agency and pathways, right? Um, so goals, agency, and pathways. Um, you have those three things and you have hope. You're absent those three things and you're hopeless, right? That's good at name. Yeah. I mean, that, that really, yeah. that, that was kind of, it, that has been a tremendously helpful concept that I've used countless times in in therapeutic work i think it's become in in many ways a cornerstone of my uh early work with with patients in fact the first phase of our intensive outpatient here um is is called uh, you know phase one is the restoration of hope you know and then the the second phase is transformation of the self and then the third phase is about integration so but the the first thing we start with is working with patients from a place of restoring hope that's that's what we do um and we do that by defining their goals in their own terms um co-creating some if they're struggling to to you know some sometimes what people are really suffering under is a lack of imagination they, they can't imagine any any longer um something other than what is happening um right so that the pathways have been narrowed down so much um, and so we, we try to help them imagine again that there are pathways other than the one that they've been on. Um, and, and then um, that those pathways can lead towards a goal that they really mm-hmm. want. Um, and then 
we help them begin to believe in themselves and have uh, some restoration of, of personal agency um, to believe that they could advance their lives uh, down these paths that they've discovered towards a goal that they want. Um, so that's kind of how hope has become not just a theoretical idea for me, but a, a practical concept in the treatment of people. Um, and and interestingly, and I'll just say this, the, the uh, uh, greatest, you know, this is another thing that's been in the news a lot, all these, these uh, celebrity um, uh, suicides uh, yeah. where people have, have completed suicide. Um, and, and all of a sudden it's, it's created a, 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 an interest in the national conversation <laughs> about uh, suicide. And, you know, people were like, well, what do you think about that? And I'm like, I, I, I don't know. I think I had four suicidal people on my calendar last week. That's what I think about it. Like, glad you're paying attention to this, but it's kind of <laughs> like for people that are in this work, it's like we, we see this every single day. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, so, but, you know, regardless, I'll take what we can get. If there's some attention paid to it, I think we should, you know, mm -hmm. leverage that to try and educate people about what, what that's really about. Um, the greatest predictor of, of the completion of suicide, um, you know, there's, there's demographic stuff that really puts people in a, you know, a population that, you know, of, you know, white male 40 somethings you know but but that is changing too um that that demographic is changing a lot um i think suicides for women um i had an article from the wall street journal uh that that was uh, looking at between 2000 and 2016 um suicides completion of suicide with women was up Profoundly, some, hmm. something like sixty percent, and then men was up thirty-seven percent over a sixteen-year period. Huge numbers. Huge numbers. Huge. So even that, the demographics uh, are, are shifting. So what's the greatest single variable associated with the completion of suicide? Is not depression or even suicidal ideation. It's hopelessness. Yeah. When people feel hopeless, I mean, you you have to be. <clears throat> suffering profoundly i heard this recently somebody said this uh in, in this meeting i was in and i i loved it i i'm gonna i i if i knew who they were i'd attribute it to them but i don't it was just kind of a thing i heard in passing and um they said someone has to be suffering so much um that they would put the end of their suffering you know the the, the completion of suicide in front of the happiness of every person that loves them. And I thought, wow, that's really, I mean, that really puts you in the shoes of the person who's, who's wanting to kill themselves that, that if they're willing to put the happiness of everyone who loves and cares about them, uh, uh, second to ending their suffering, they are in a tremendous amount of pain, yeah. a tremendous amount of pain. And, um, and beyond that is, is I think, uh, a tremendous amount of hopelessness. They cannot imagine a way forward other than ending their life. And so that's what that's another part of why I feel like this is such an important conversation for us to have about hope and despair. Um, that, uh, the, you know, I think it was Joseph Campbell said, it's the darkest moment that comes before the light. Mm -hmm. And so when, when we're pushed all the way down this dark path of even thinking of killing ourselves, if, if we don't kill ourselves, that's, 
that's that transformational moment in the hero's journey where you you transcend and you know you you, you have a a, a transit a transcendent experience you know you've descended into darkness and you have a transformational experience in that place that allows you to emerge the other side and so you know as kind of tell people look we're this is you know it feels awful but we're on the brink of something really important here right um that, that thin line between breaking down and breaking through um that that shifts um so anyway well i, I 925 how much time do we have um Probably a hard stop at 9.45. Uh, okay, no, that, I was thinking a bit earlier. That's perfectly fine. Um, so suicide, it, it's of course at the forefront of, yeah, as you said, a lot of people's thoughts right now. And while it may be familiar for us, I'm with you in my practice, you know, I, I certainly encounter that. Um, I, where I'm, where I'm going here is we're kind of addressing a lot of the, you know, the, the definition and the kind of theoretical orientation, hope, despair. We're giving it some names. I love this uh, goals, agency, and pathways, mm-hmm. and that to, to assess somebody's um, the presence of those variables in their life, yeah, and how those things interact with each other, and then providing hope in the ones where they don't have that. Um, but I am wondering about because you're a kind of this this term keeper of stories, you know, not only in your research but in your professional world. What you do is you you hold stories. Mm-hmm. So not to go into the personal content of anybody you've ever worked with, but I'm wondering if you're reporting on certain things through your dissertation that you can kind of help bring some stories into our conversation today that may provide a little bit of understanding on this dynamic between hope and despair. Yeah, so so I'll, I can definitely speak to that without you know revealing anybody's particular story. So the research subjects in in my current study right now um, are, are not any patients that I've worked with because that would represent a conflict. As mm-hmm. you know, they're kind of a vulnerable population, but um, but there are people who have done therapy. Right, that's a kind of requisite part for inclusion in the in in the study. And I, I do two interviews with them. The first interview. I asked them questions about, you know, things like, how would you define hope in your own words? How would you define despair in your own words? Um, have you ever experienced these things? Have you, you know, what does that look like? And they, they get to talking about their experience and they just tell their, their story, right? And invariably, and, and then the, se- the second interview is really um, geared around looking at hope and despair as conceptual parts of their treatment, whatever. <clears throat> excuse me, whatever therapy that they've done, um, looking at that. And um, it's interesting how, how, how in talking with people, um, it's clear that despair is the organizing concept that brings them into treatment. Like nobody, nobody's like, you know what, I just want to show up and pay this guy a bunch of money. And, you know, I'm feeling really good, but I just want to kind of, dig you know, into myself. just dig deep. No, 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 no. That is not how people present yeah. therapy. They present with um, something on their li- something or many things in their life are completely on fire and burning down in front of them. Right? That's that is invariably how people present to treatment. Like, mm-hmm. you know, and and they may, they may have a calm, cool exterior. They may be like, you know, I'm just kind of wanting to get some insight about, you know, and 
we get into it and they're having, you know, yeah. an existential crisis or they're having, you know, a, a, a very, you know, practical relational one or, you know, whatever. Um, so despair is, inev- is inevitably what bring brings people in the door. But then as they start to unpack their story in the treatment, um, what happens is that that thing that was causing them so much suffering, so much distress and so much despair becomes the basis around which they do transformative work and 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 um, advance their lives. So so the perfect example is just is I mean, look no further than the narrative of my story. Right. I uh, I took a very uh, uh, difficult and, and despairing early childhood experience. And it became the, I mean, that has become the basis um, for my entire career. So what I've chosen to do with my life, how I make a living, what I, what I have, have chosen to find meaning in is directly related to my own personal experience. Um, And, and I feel very lucky for that, you know, Um, that, that my, my vocation is also my avocation, that my job is also my calling. Um, that I, I feel profoundly lucky to have, as I'm sure you do too. Um, so the, the narratives that I've heard from people in, in, in therapy, but also in the research, are really almost without variation. I mean, the individual experiences of course, are, are widely varied. But the felt experience, like the affective part of it, is pretty much the same arc, you know? And right. uh, and, and that's, th- there is a common humanity about what brings people into treatment and also what, what cures them, I think. Well, and there's a double, double despair because the kind of assumption that I operate on when somebody comes into my office is that they have exhausted all of their options. Yeah. You know, yeah. that's the, they're, they're not, yeah, they're, this is not the first house on the block. Right. Yeah. <laughs> this is we're not talking the last about, house on the block. People are yeah. like, Oh, now I got to try therapy. Jeez. So it's, it's also like this mm-hmm. incredible defeat that yeah. everything I try is not working. And so I must be defective. Uh, yeah. And and so so it's this despair in the world and also despair in an identity and yeah that that's just such and then I you know I, I had somebody recently say because well, I, I was providing them feedback on kind of the course of treatment and I you know, I, I I like the term borrowed hope because it's mm-hmm. now it gives a name to what I was doing it's very genuine you know I mean I was yes. I was looking at this guy saying like hey man we're going to get through this. Like this yeah. is manageable. I got a front row seat to a lot of experiences where people come in like this. And I've seen a lot of these, um, arcs mm. and I kind of can track the path a little bit. So together we can, we can jump in there and make something happen. Yeah, and his absolutely. feedback was, I, I really like your optimism because he doesn't have any, mm-hmm. but there's a faith, as you said earlier, there's a faith in my optimism and my hope. Yeah. And, and so there's, there, there really is, you know, the, sure, the despair is there, and we all know what that feels like. And I couldn't help but trying to define despair when you were talking about defining hope and despair, and I could only do it really poetically and with an image. I mean, it feels like being in the dark with an enormous desire to have somebody or anyone close to me 
and without access to anybody, any input, any connection, uh, any possibility, just completely and utterly alone with an enormous desire to connect and uh, alone. Yeah. And that, that's the, the kind of image that comes to mind. So yeah. then not only that, it's everything that I could possibly imagine to do to mm-hmm. get myself out of this hole has failed me. Yes. And that's the starting point. Yeah. So what is that arc? How does somebody get? Well, so first of all, I mean, like this is, you did exactly what I said, which is, you know, there's a theme. It included darkness versus light. It's that, you know, there's a universal human experience. And there's, there's something people, people will understand being in that place. Um, uh, just hearing your description of it, which is a lovely description. Um, it's a painful, scary one, um, yeah. but it's it's a really accurate one. Um, so, uh, and, and this is back, back to the idea that hope is a relational construct. Hope has to be a relational construct that we activate in the therapy. Um, that we do hope, not you have hope. We do it. Um, it's a verb mm. and it's done in, 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 in a kind of relational process, um, beginning with you lending hope to that patient. So that's a good example. Um, and you, you used hope interchangeably with optimism there. And I would say that that's not optimism. Hmm. Um, uh-huh. Thank that, you. Because, well, because optimism is a, is, a, is a cognitive construct. That's one of the defining features of it. Optimism is something we think about. Yes. Hope is something that's actually a, a felt like and an relational experience. Yeah, hope yeah. is the kind of embodiment of that experience in my, in my perception and, and based on some of what I've kind of seen so far in the research. Um, so uh, this is more than just thinking our way into a better way yeah. of, of, of being and living. This is actually um, uh, feeling and relating um, in a way that transforms us, right? That's, that's really what we're doing. And, um, and so I think sometimes, um, uh, I, I think it was Pima Chodron that said, um, uh, you know, basically, um, we, we, you know, sometimes we're kind of in that dark place. We, we, the therapist kind of climbs down in the hole and sits with people, um, and lets them know that they're, they're not alone in that. Um, and then, uh, and then I think it's about unlocking potentials that were already there, um, that people have for, pe- people have forgotten what they're capable of usually um, in in the treatment, and they're they're often looking for you or me or you know wh- whomever the the therapist is to tell them what they need to do in order to, and uh, you know this is wisdom from my mother-in-law who's who's just an incredibly wise woman. Um, uh, she said, everything you need is already in you. Everything you need is already in you. And I tell people that, you know, everything they need is already in them. And if they're looking to me for answers, I was telling this guy the other day, I said, look, I only know what you've told me. So anything that I'm reflecting back to you is simply a mirror of what I are. I've come to know through you. <laughs> you know, So, you're looking for answers that already reside in you. Um, you're well equipped for what you for what lies ahead, you know. And 
he really got it. I mean, he really was able to kind of hold on to that, I think. And um, he's like, oh, yeah, everything you know about me, I've taught I've taught you. <laughs> like, Yes, that's right. <laughs> um, so which is true. So um, I think that's part of what we do is we facilitate a relational process that uh, lets people know that, A, they're not alone. Um, uh, and, and that um, in, in this kind of, you know, larger cosmic journey we're, we're on, they're never alone. And they can't be. There's a kind of interconnectedness to all of this experience that's really um, interesting. At least that's my thought. I don't push that on everybody, but I, you know, it's often what people come to and their understanding. Um, and and then, um, you know, I I, I think uh, we begin to kind of help them imagine. So you know, they're in this deep dark hole. This just came to I, you know, this just popped into my mind. But they're in this deep dark hole. They feel alone. You climb down in the hole. And basically remind them that uh, uh, a um, they can uh, you know part of how they'll get out of the hole is to stop digging, yeah. you know, put the shovel down. <laughs> you know, people always say, "When will I know I've hit bottom?" And I say, "When you stop digging, <laughs> you know, when you put the <laughs> shovel down, you'll know you're, you've hit bottom." Yeah. <clears throat> so digging deeper is not the way to get out of the hole. Um, and then I think ultimately, in some sense, we help them. Um, realize that uh something they've forgotten which is that they could fly all along mm-hmm. <laughs> you know that they could just i don't know levitate out of the hole um and and i think they really do um you know they, they start to do things um first in really small ways um you know whether it's basic kind of taking care of themselves in ways that they have kind of stopped doing or, or whatever and and then that just builds and builds and then they, they start to do and and become capable of things they had forgotten they even wanted or forgot that they were capable of you know so so i'm we've got six minutes and i want to i want to finish before your heart stop because okay. I wanna, all, right. all right um what are we leaving out <clears throat> anything else that that comes to mind that um kind of knocked on your door as we were talking um so I, this here's something i'm grappling with <laughs> that i think would be worth thinking about um um it's how to transform this idea so, so my, my belief of, uh, about therapy is that it's only useful if it's taken off the couch and into the world, right? right? So if, if for an hour a week or even a few hours a week, um, you have this profound relational process in the treatment that feels really meaningful and um, gives you some encouragement about, you know, and, and some hope about your future, and then you leave and do the same old thing, well, then it's not going to be really useful to you, right? right? So it's really about translating this into support systems outside of the treatment that, you know, where people take this off the couch and into the world. And I've always told people that, you know, that's my belief about the therapy is that, look, we'll, we'll look at it, our relationship together here. We'll think about it in a variety of different ways. But ultimately, we'll need to translate what's happening here to the rest of your life if it's going to be useful to mm-hmm. you. That part, I think, is well understood by therapists, um, it was particularly dynamic ones, anyway. Right. Um, looking at you know the, the 
the dyadic relationship in the treatment. But um, what I'm having a hard time with is how do we translate these concepts in a much larger sense? Because I think culturally right now, um, faith, hope, and love, which we've been talking about, <laughs> um, are desperately lacking in the national conversation. Um, and not just the conversation, but the behavior, right? How we're treating people. Um, yeah, we're, a lot we're, of not, people say it. we're not treating people with love. Yeah. We're not facilitating hope. Um, th- this is the, you know, I mean, you've seen this research of, you know, this is probably the least hopeful uh, young generation that's coming up. They don't think they can do better than their parents. And they might be right if things continue in the same in the same way. People like to blame millennials for being lazy and all this crazy yeah. stuff. And it's like, well, wait a second, their wages haven't grown, but their housing costs have increased fivefold. And their student like, loans try, are and their student loans were outraged. So go try and you know, it's like go try and buy a house. It's like no wonder you're living at home at thirty something because you right. you you know it's that or an apartment with four people. Um, to live in a part of town that you want to live in. So <clears throat> so how do we translate these ideas <clears throat> off the couch and into the world? How do we take therapeutic constructs like um, facilitating hope um, and and think about it on a much larger scale? And so that's the, I don't have an answer to that. That's mm-hmm. just more of a, you know, a question. Um, I think for me and for us is how do we, um, how do we have faith be part of a, a the national conversation, not in a way that's alienating? Because mm-hmm. right now the way that faith is used um, is to carve up. Um, are you a believer? You know, are you a believer? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and and the problem with fundamentalism is it can't be disproven, right? So so you can't cause you can't disprove a negative, and every time you you try to challenge it, it just it means you don't have enough faith. You should just believe more, and then it would be okay. So that's not the faith I'm talking about. <laughs> I'm not talking right. about uh, fundamentalism. I think Bill Curley had a lecture uh, earlier this year called There's Nothing Fun or Mental About Fundamentalism. Um, <laughs> which I completely agree uh, Which I <clears throat> totally agree with. Um, so yeah. that's not what I'm talking about, but it's more, um, uh, I think Americans have had uh, uh, faith in, in our uh, ability to create, to innovate, to... Um, to do uh, uh, profound things in the face of adversity. Um, we've had hope for our future um, that I think we're, we're struggling to kind of um, uh, find right now. Yeah. And and I think we're really, there's a deficit of, of love happening <laughs> right now. Um, so uh, that, that's what I'm grappling with. And I, I hope um, that people might consider um, those things about how, how they could bring that into their day-to-day life. Well, despite the fact that I think that you and I could, I have about four hours worth of questions and conversation. <laughs> we'll uh, do it again. We'll do it again. <laughs> I'm thankful. Yeah. Really. Thank yeah. you for this space and time. Oh, thank you. It's yeah. been a pleasure. I really had fun. And until next time. All right.
seen the light Leave my father's eyes And he dies as he sighs at long goodbyes He blames his pain On everything but shame And he dies as he cries Still survives Who will he ever blame? The cooker Cooker, cooker, cook cocaine. An apathetic shrug. We blame it on the drugs. But why care? It's not you, so it seems fair. Just close your eyes. Absurd, but not you. You're cool, just pass on through. So see the light leaving out of your eyes. You die as you sigh a long goodbye. 